Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. On this show, we are lucky to have Tawana Black, the founder and chief executive officer of the Center for Economic Inclusion and previously the executive director of the Northside Funders Group. She has a 2014 Bush Fellow and Living Cities called her one of the nation's top 25 disruptive leaders. We chatted about better economic inclusion, specifically looking at what we're doing right and what needs to be done better. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here, and there's so much to talk about. Um, can we start with you a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so I, I did a little bit of your bio in here, and you were part of, you, you were the executive director of Northside Funders Group previously, before Center for Economic uh, Inclusion. So can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and like why moving from that space into what the center does now, right? What, what was Absolutely. happening before and then you decided to start something different and new? Absolutely. So first off, thanks you so much for this invitation. As you said, we were Bush Fellows together and I have um, admired this from a distance and admired you and your work from a distance. And I am, exactly, exactly. Um, and I promise not to run off the stage like the Apple. Yeah, um, good. Uh, so I'm thrilled to be here. And I have been in the Twin Cities for just over nine years. And uh, join the work with Northside Funders Group, a collaborative of foundations who have all been investing their dollars in North Minneapolis, trying to get to racial and economic equity, really through the lens of looking inside their own work, looking inside their foundations and saying, what do we need to change? What do we need to do differently? And I led that coalition for the last six years and started trying to take the work we were doing in North Minneapolis um, to the region, trying to help regional economic development leaders, policy leaders, and business leaders think about North Minneapolis not as just a place that needed another Band-Aid, not as just a place um, of, of lost hope or a place that needed charity, but really to say, how do we connect the assets that exist here to some of the challenges that are facing the region? How do we connect the assets that exist in this neighborhood um, to some of the opportunities that exist in the region from an employment perspective or business development perspective? And what I found about three years ago was that was a hard sell. It was hard for leaders to start to think about this neighborhood, to start to think about Northside residents as assets. Can I uh, start hard sell for whom? For sure. everybody? Sure. For um, Actually, yes. Um, I think even people who um, are committed, even people who speak the words racial equity, even people who wake up every day focusing on um, low-income people don't often wake up to that work um, with a lens of connecting place-based work to regional work, um, don't often get the opportunity or take the opportunity to think about um, people who may be facing poverty as not... Um, impoverish themselves, right? That As people, mm. um, poverty is economics. It isn't about the person. And so that notion was harder and harder to get people to stay with it. I might end one meeting and people would be there, but by the next week when I come back, they were back where they were, back in that deficit thinking, back in the charity place, back in that Band-Aid place. And so um, in doing that work and trying to think about how to move it from only thinking about North Minneapolis to also thinking about other neighborhoods in the east side of St. Paul or places uh, that face poverty in all suburbs throughout the region, um, I recognize the need to not, that you couldn't do that just through an effort. You couldn't do that just through a collaborative, that this region really needed the infrastructure, the organizational infrastructure to go deeper. And I asked some friends to come along on a journey with me to say, is there a better way to go about building an economy in this region that really works for everybody? 
And the piece, one of the pieces that I, I, I was listening back to some other talk that you've given uh, to just sort of that you build on that is that it has traditionally and still often is uh, questions about uh, inclusion and diversity are seen as sort of a charity problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's something that, oh, we should do is sort of like a handout almost. Mm-hmm. And you have a very sort of different paradigm or mm-hmm. way of approaching this, mm-hmm. particularly with the Center for Economic Inclusion. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Our tagline when we were launching was, this isn't about charity, but there are economics that are involved here. And so in our region, for instance, um, studies show that we are losing between, depending on which one you look at, 15 to $30 billion in gross regional product because of the racial wage inequities that exist in our region. Can you, so I, that is so huge and powerful. Mm-hmm. Can you help us unpack, what does that sure. mean? Like how Absolutely. are we losing yeah. that? So first we look at racial wage inequity. So most of us have probably seen a lot of studies about employment inequity. So we're used to hearing that number in educational inequities, which lead us to think about, okay, there are people who every day don't have a job to go to or don't go to a job. But when we only think about that number, we tend to think about that as being on the person. Oh, you must not want to work. And I've given plenty of speeches in this region where people line up to tell me afterwards the 101 reasons why I shouldn't do what I do because people who look like me don't want to work. Mm. But the facts are that's not true. The facts also show that in our region, people who look like me make less than people who look like you even when they have degrees that are higher ranking. So even when we take African-Americans who have PhDs, when we take African-Americans who have master's degrees and we put them right beside people who have comparable, comparable degrees or less education, they make less when they're employed. Those wage inequities cost us in gross regional products because the businesses that those individuals are employed by are producing less. Their productivity is less, then their profitability is less, which hurts all of us. That isn't only about people who aren't employed. That isn't only hurting people who are making less. That hurts our entire economy. And then when we add to that the thousands of individuals who are unemployed or underemployed, that, again, hinders our economy's ability to grow. That hinders our ability to attract and retain businesses in our region who come and say, you know, I want to stay here. We've got 18 Fortune 500 companies who say, I want to stay here, but I need to grow. I need to be able to innovate, and I can't get the talent or I can't keep the talent because I'm struggling to have people on my payroll who know how to look at talent and value it and reward it as such, who know how to compensate it as such. Those inequities that are rooted in bias, that are rooted in racisms and other economic isms, require us to create change. But we can't go about that change simply through a charity mindset that says, okay, let's go start another training program. Let's build maybe a few more houses. Let me say I'm willing to hire a few more people. Because if we don't get to the root causes, the causes that allow us to look at two different people and say, wait a minute, I think you're worth this and maybe you're worth that. You should be in that job, but not able to rise to this one. If we don't examine that and then really take it on at the root will continue to perpetuate the racism that has existed in not just our community, but our country for far too long. And so part of it seems like part of what you're saying is that not that there's a problem with the charity Mm -hmm. piece of it, but just that that is always going to be sort of, I don't know, just something on a a level that's not getting to the the root piece, as you said. It doesn't go far enough. And it inhibits our ability to understand... 
the roots of, uh, yeah, the root cause of it, but it also inhibits our ability to go far enough in our solutions, right? So if we start with what's the cause, we'll apply the right solution. So whether if it was a medical issue, say I compare it a lot to, to health, um, when you get sick, you want somebody to go the full distance. And you might see multiple doctors. You might see a traditional physician. You might see somebody who is practicing um, something that's more neuropathic um, for your issue, but you want to get to the root cause of that ultimately before you describe what's the actual prescription. Too often, we tend to prescribe for um, inequities. We tend to prescribe for racial and economic challenges before we get to the root cause because we're just looking at that symptom of economics, um, and charity hasn't gotten us far enough. So that is a a great table setting for the Mm -hmm. Center for Economic Inclusion. Mm -hmm. So talk to us, how is it different than, you know, a lot of the other, again, maybe foundations, nonprofits, uh, funders groups that have existed before? How are you different? Absolutely. So first we say that those organizations and initiatives need to exist oftentimes, and we need market-based solutions. So everything that we do within the Center for Economic Inclusion is focused on a couple of things. One is centering people of color. It means that the solutions that we've had historically have not centered people of color, have put them on the margins and put us on the margins. And so it says we center people of color. The second is everything we do is data-informed. So we have a robust amount of data that is informed not just by quantitative data, though that's significant, but also informed by people themselves and constantly examining that. And it's market responsive. And so historically, many of the solutions we've applied have been rooted in the solutions that community could put forward, rooted in solutions from philanthropy or government. All important. However, without the market, without the private sector being actively, deeply engaged and committed to hiring, to opening up businesses, to investing in businesses, to investing in bricks and mortar, we're kidding ourselves about getting out of more than 400 years of disinvestment, of taking from, of not hiring, of not investing in a community of people. We're kidding ourselves about our ability to work our way out of that and capture the economic benefits. So we root ourselves in solutions that center that private sector alongside and with communities of color. And what's that mean? It means that we flip that those solutions on their head and say, instead of just thinking about training people who need jobs, we train people who hire. So we go inside companies and employers and say, let's get close to this situation and understand how well the supervisors you have are equipped to be able to create and maintain an inclusive workplace. Let's put it in their hands, and their words, and if they're not equipped, let's go beyond diversity 101 and 201 and 301 and really get to creating a racially inclusive workplace. How well equipped are they to be able to purchase goods and services from businesses that are owned by people of color? That is a place where my history as a diversity officer teaches me people make tighter decisions with those company dollars than they do with their own personal dollars. They're hard to be able to give up those purchasing relationships I've had with this t-shirt vendor or this restaurateur for a long time. We help them break out of that and figure out how do you build new, more racially inclusive relationships with vendors in the best interest of both this region and this employer And then figuring out how we measure that individual institutional action and how it ultimately impacts this region. There's a piece I'm really curious about because you noted there 400 years of history, you know, Mm -hmm. on this continent of that. um, And you make a very strong point. It's imperative that we understand as that history as we go forward with this work. And at the same time, I would guess there are companies, there are people who call you and they're like, just fix it like mm-hmm. just take care of it right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. come on like we can just yep. do this right mm-hmm. so how do you how do you 
navigate that mm-hmm. because you know on one hand you want them to be doing this work going Absolutely. forward and you don't want to say well you have to sign up for you know the college the level package. class mm-hmm. and yet you're like but you really should sign up mm-hmm. for the whole class yeah. so how do you just yeah. what do you do a principle that i have and my team we have in this work is meeting people where they are because you can't expect someone to get from here to here or to drop here if i'm here i'm here and we want to get as many people on the on-ramps as we possibly can. That said, as soon as people get on that on-ramp, they start taking you back through their own history, which gives us that on-ramp to be able to say, oh, I heard you. All right, now let me start to bring you along on this journey. Let me help you understand what's happening in your own organization and how that relates to history. So it's not for us saying, okay, everybody must go through class number race equity 501 before we'll start to work and engage with you. But we do spend time with employers connecting what's happening inside their organizations to the regional landscape. And a way we do that um, right now is with an assessment tool we're building um, to help employers understand how to get past just thinking about demographics. For instance, hiring is huge for everyone right now. Talent shortages exist across the board. And most people want to start right there. Just help me get some talent, Tawana. If you can connect me to people who are willing to work, I'm in. We come in and say, okay, but let's understand what's happening in your business today. Where are you getting talent today? Who's staying? Who's leaving? Why are they leaving? What do you know about that? We ask questions like, do you know the number of people on your payroll today, for instance, who are housing cost burdened? Once you know that, do you, what do you know about those people? Do you know why they're housing cost burdened? Do you know the number of your employees today who might be homeless? Most large employers would say, I can't have anybody because I know I pay at least $15 an hour. Do you know what that actually buys people? Do you know what it actually buys somebody who has four people in their family versus six? Somebody who tends to be in a multi-generational family situation versus somebody who is in a single situation. And then we help those employers understand that. So it isn't saying I have to force you to go back to 400 years. We can talk about history right now. What's happening inside your yeah. place? And then people want to know. They have a yearning to know what's happening because it's in their own economic interest. And so that is a piece. Is that why you find that folks are come to the center is because of their own economic interest or is it because of their own sense of social justice or a combination of those do you do you survey them you Uh, know it's a little bit different in each case what the data shows though nationally we partner with brookings institution quite a bit and they recently shared some data with us and our cohort members across the country and it shows that in order to get employers to stay actively committed in this type of work for longer than six minutes basically i'm being facetious but i'm also being real that you have to be able to keep them engaged on what's the self-interest of the company the employer and the self-interest of the region that heart piece and the economics literally that you need to be emphasizing both of those almost every other week that this week i need to talk to you about your self-interest as an employer and the economics of that next week i need to come into you and make that bigger moral case about how it's going to help the region and community the very next week i need to switch back off and talk to you about the self-interest and it'd be nice if most people came and they were centrally in it because it was what was the right thing to do but the reality is that holds attention for a very short amount of time and it has not won the day so while i need my partners in this community who are great at the hard work to stay on it there are days when the rest of my life calls me to do the hard work the reality is if the economics don't show if we can't show those numbers and we can't draw them in We lose every time the economy shrinks, and we're going to see it shrink in a few years, and we have to be prepared for that to win the day. Um, I want to talk more. I I really appreciate – oh, there's lots of snaps, uh, which is good, appropriate. And um, 
that region piece, but can we just also talk a little bit more about the center? You talked mm-hmm. a little bit about there's there's a training or a piece that happens. There's also accountability pieces that mm-hmm. you encourage, and you talked a little bit about uh, measurements and metrics. And so mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about that kind of work sure. that you all do. Sure. So this past April, in April, we released a set of indicators called them Indicators for an Inclusive Regional Economy. And there are 14 of them that weren't developed by us, but we brought together a wide range of people from across the region to help decide what were indicators that every leader in any sector could look at and know really quickly how are we faring as it relates to economic inclusion and then move to goal setting. And those indicators include things like you'd expect around wages and employment, the things we're typically used to seeing associated. They also include things like the graduation rates for people um, from four-year degrees as well as two-year and certificates. They also include things that you might not expect to see, like where is lending happening for both businesses and commercial development and lending for mortgages to middle-income people, because we often see a lot of statistics around low-income. But what we wanted to see was discrimination bias still taking place around middle-income people of color trying to seek mortgages. And we found out, yes, in fact, we see great disparities there. And it includes housing affordability, where we saw we have no affordability for people. It does not matter what your race is in our region. And we take that data, and it's completely disaggregated by race. It's disaggregated by place. So we serve the seven-county metro, and you could go to our website and see that data some places. and some pieces, you could zoom in by census tract level. But it wasn't enough to just have the data available. That's huge. It's important. Many people had never seen the data. But then you've got to figure out, okay, how do I take that and make it real? So you can go in and see stories and see how people are applying that data. What's it look like in reality for someone to live and show up in life with this data? Because we all live our lives in very intersectional ways. But the last part is goal setting. For a long time, we've seen the studies from Economic Policy Institute study almost 10 years ago to local studies that have been done since then, but we've never had goals that helped us understand where should we be? Where do we want to be as a region? And I push our leaders often when we say, well, we're worse than Mississippi. Who cares? When have we ever aspired to be better than Mississippi? (laughs) What do we want to be as a state? Who can we be as a state? Better than Mississippi. Absolutely. But how do we measure that? And who should be in control of that? Should you be in control of how good my life is? Should I be in control of how good your life is? Like, I don't think so. So we want to be sure that people across this region have their hands in establishing what goals are. So that's our next body of work. This fall, we're engaging in hosting meetings for people to come in and say, what should our region actually look like? So by the time we get to next April for our summit, that we'll be releasing goals across those indicators. Is there, this is like the uh, son of a Lutheran minister piece coming out where it's like, is there a piece of collecting that data, telling those stories that then it's like, and we should, you know, maybe just gently shame some of these companies in some ways uh you know just just not not angrily just mm-hmm. we're disappointed mm-hmm. absolutely um, absolutely if you were to see and i know you've seen some speeches that i've given one of the things that i say frequently is if you look at the data from 2007 to 2017 this region only closed the wage inequities by one percent Despite a lot of meetings, a lot of coalitions, a whole lot of nonprofits, a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of great effort and a lot of commitment, 1%. If that happened in any other domain, a lot of people would get fired. But in this case, we open another organization, we open up another set of coalitions, another set of meetings, and we all say, oh, hmm. And I point that out to say, again, that wasn't the employment gap. That was the wage gap. People of color don't have control of that. 
people who set wages have control of that. Employers have control of that. You can do something about that. You can get in control of the bias that's taking place inside your workplace. You can examine the data to say, oh, wait a minute, we have several people who have the same title, what set of experience, and wait a minute, we've got inequities happening here. We didn't do anything about it in 10 years. We moved it 1%. And oh, wait a minute, how did affordability change in our region over that 10 years like this? Right, It did not become more affordable to live in Minneapolis-St. Paul over that 10 years. So from a wealth perspective, which is where we keep our eye, people of color moved even further down in their ability to actually afford to live in this region. And who cared about that? So it is about shaming. It is about calling that out and saying you have no right to applaud yourself for work when that statistic continues to exist. And if it exists in 10 years, a whole lot of people better lose their jobs. I got to say, I appreciate... Yeah, I'm going to say good. And... I so appreciate that you lean into, like, it is about shaming. Because, like, I do, I, I believe, like, shaming is a good tool that we sometimes are afraid to use. And I'm like, no, there are times when people should be shamed. Uh, so uh, since we talked about it several times, uh, region, we've talked about this. We, uh, you, you talked about why this is so important for this region that we haven't closed this. And then there's a lot of conversation about how we compare. Like, we love to compare ourselves. And, in fact, like, in some cases, we love to compare ourselves and say how great we are we've had quite a few shows actually where we've talked about in this area we are not like we don't probably i mean we should be comparing ourselves but it's not like a good story usually but i'm curious like how how uh we're we were talking a little bit about this before the show how are we viewed sort of beyond the twin cities uh region and then if you found in working here, if there are things that are unique to this place that either make that the work that you're doing harder, easier, different somehow? Yeah. So we, as we talked, I am spending a good amount of my time right now helping other cities across the country. Well, we are the first organization in the country that was created exclusively to create an economy that works for everyone with that lens for race um, and with a lens toward income, uh, employment, and wealth. And so there are cities across the country who are calling us now. And I'd say that what I hear often is people know us to be a land of collaboration. They know that we are a place that likes to move across those lines, I push back a little bit and say, well, sometimes. Um, uh, But do we really collaborate? What I often describe as do we move beyond elbow to elbow to truly being arm in arm where everyone has that true seat at the table and we move to really understanding each other and knowing each other well enough to do true collaboration. Um, But people know that they've heard a lot about racial equity from Mayor Hodge's time of having that as an explicit focus and doing a lot of time across the country to now our current um, mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul who both have that as clear goals and they're lots of national funders who've invested in racial equity. Um, So people have heard that. At the same time, I would say this notion of inclusivity um, and how progressive the state is as opposed to how racially inclusive we are continues to be a gap that people ask about and wonder about. How is it that we can have these disparities and yet be known as a place that has been so socially progressive? And I'd say as someone who moved here now almost 10 years ago, that was one of the things that hit me hard in the face even before I got here and just got my husband's corporate relocation package in the mail that had the Diversity Inc. portfolio saying, wait a minute, the Twin Cities has all these Fortune 500s, but they're struggling to keep people of color and professionals of color. What will they do? Is it because they're from the South and their blood is thinner and so it's cold up there? It's it's not that, in case you wondered. Um, (laughs) That is not it. But I look back and say that I got that packet and that magazine in the mail at the end of 2009. What has changed? 
in 10 years. Not a whole lot from a statistics perspective, not a whole lot from a culture, despite lots of efforts. And people see that as they have professionals who might move from city to city and tell that narrative or they engage from place to place. And I think for me, the collaboration nature makes it easier. The number of big companies we have here who need the talent and the demand for talent makes it a bit easier to do this work. But that mindset of Minnesotans who have for so long believed ourselves to be more inclusive than the rest of the country because we're progressives makes it harder because people want it to be easier than it's going to be. We are not going to solve this in five years. Um, We opened our doors uh, two years ago next month. The public didn't find out about it till April of the next year. So you're literally people have known about the center for 18 months. And folks expect me to have already solved for 400 years of racism and disinvestment. And when I say me, really, they mean me, like me alone. Like, give me a break. Well, just in the seven-county <laughs> metro, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah, just solve all that, Tawana. Um, and so that need to get over, um, get over the progressiveness, get over thinking that it's just simple, get over thinking that one organization can do it, and acknowledge the roots of it. Can I ask a, a follow-up question with that? Because I've had somebody uh, ask me... A, or suggest a theory on this to me, which seems very similar to that, which is that in the Minnesota, we are really good at building organizations and building sort of like infrastructure to try and tackle things, right? And so if there's a problem, we're like, we'll make a nonprofit or we will give it to this big foundation who will like solve it somehow and then I don't have to worry about it the same way I did. Mm -hmm. And in other places where maybe you don't have that culture, you don't have some of that in happening, maybe there is a little bit more of people being like, oh, well, if something's going to happen, I have to do it. I don't know. I'm curious what yeah. you think about that theory. Yeah, that is an interesting one. Um, that is interesting. I had not heard that theory. What I would say about that as a woman um, who's also a minister and operates in that space and where we teach, you know, the problem with creating deities who are human is you build them up and it's easy to knock them back down. So when I heard you saying that, like we build these nonprofits and then we, it's easy to watch them fall apart as we wait for somebody else to do it. We wait for them to get built up. Um, and it has to be that I'm going to do it. And if I could draw a parallel, I recently spent time in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, where their community foundation, if they could, they would open a center for economic inclusion tomorrow. They are convinced it is the right thing that they need. Their economy is hurting. They know it's what they need. But what they said to me when they called is, can you come here? Because we know we cannot get ahead of the community. Hmm. And they said, we know we have some people who fear growth, economic growth. They, They fear regional growth. They fear capitalism being the center of this. And so we need you to come spend time. We need you to tell us what you hear. And if this is even something we should continue to pursue, but we will not get ahead of the people here, even if we can. And I walked into a ballroom with like 500, 600 people, like full of people, and they processed the heck out of this question to the point that by the end of the day, the people who were the anti-growth, the anti-capitalism hit me with that question after my keynote from the stage and came up afterwards to say, thank you. That was the first time we felt like we got a real answer to how you can have not pushing for growth, but allowing growth to happen if that's what happens and yet have a focus on inclusion. And now we think we can get behind this. That's a different approach than here just setting up a nonprofit and waiting to see if it takes it on or if it doesn't. I mean, I was going to break, but this is such an uh, important thing that I have to ask. Because that was one of the things on my cards mm-hmm. is like, we also live in this time, I imagine, mm-hmm. where 
you do get that pushback who mm-hmm. people say you inherently are made according to some folks like working in a very broken system like mm-hmm. why are you trying to like make this good happen in a capitalist structure that will necessarily poison all of the fruit mm-hmm. that falls from it mm-hmm. and so <laughs> apples be damned yes. uh, so so yeah i'm curious how do you answer that yeah I answer that to say that today, this is the system. And while we are not pro the system, we are pro making sure people of color benefit from the system because we're not going to shut the system down tomorrow. So at the same time that we are dismantling every racist element that exists within that system, we are disrupting every element of the system that is broken. We have to make sure that people of color are benefiting from it to its fullest extent. We have to be calling those things out that are not right. We have to be creating spaces and places for people to be influencing who have never been at the table to influence and lifting up those assets for those who have been influencing and creating more places and spaces for them to do so. So it is not a space to say that capitalism is the only way. It's not a space to say that growth is the only way. There are places and days when I drive around and question, like, how much more growth to what end? We don't have the infrastructure to support what we have today. And we're not going to overrule all of those decisions tomorrow. So what we have to do is make sure that those who are here, those who have been here, indigenous people to whom this land belongs, benefit from it immediately as much as we possibly can and begin to disrupt and dismantle as much as we can and have the infrastructure and investment in those new systems and begin to elevate those as much as we can as we go along. That is a beautiful, powerful note to end on. Can you all please help me do a big round of applause? Juana Black. Okie dokie. Hello. So, if you have a question uh, that you would like to ask of our guest, uh, please raise your hand. I will come towards you uh, with the microphone in a non-threatening manner, and I will reward you with a sticker. All right, so, uh, who has a question? On your market set, go. Okay, good. I like it when it's all the way in the back. Uh, good. Uh, hello. Hi, Tawana. Hi there. Are there any favorite bright spots of companies and their practices that you appreciate? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think my general bright spot for employers that we work with are employers who are open. And employers who are open tend to be those who are really in it because they need to be in it. And so um, a couple of examples that I would give for you um, are uh, one of our employers that we have worked with um, who needed talent and wanted, came to us because they were just beside the north side. They're just in northeast Minneapolis. And they found a couple of things were challenging for them in being able to hire, particularly men from north Minneapolis who historically they had been known for not hiring and were working with us to be able to bring people on. And we had some early successes, but we're finding that some of their um, just standard practices were getting in the way. So they, um, for instance, hired people once they made the offer. They did their drug screening in St. Paul. And they did that drunk screening between like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. Well, if you know anything about transportation um, in our region, you would know that getting from North Minneapolis to St. Paul at 7 a.m. is pretty difficult if you don't have transportation of your own, right? And the folks that we serve um, in our program typically have been unemployed sometimes up to five years. And so they don't have their own dedicated transportation. Um, And all it took was us being able to point that out to them to say, you know, this isn't that you necessarily created that contract to be racist, but it does have implications on it that have 
have place-based and race-based implications that keep this population out of, and that helped them change it. That same employer also had jobs that when they examined them, they had had a requirement that you have um, an associate's degree, and that was keeping a lot of people from getting into that job. When they started examining it, they said, you know what, actually, we don't even think people need a high school diploma for this job, and we could help them get their diploma once they got on board, and then we could help them get additional credentials to be able to move up, but we've really created an artificial barrier to be able to get employed, and so they started removing that barrier and others, and their biggest interest, I should tell you, wasn't even that north northeast Minneapolis facility. It was really the Rogers facility, and so we were able to help them see if you can bring people in and get them stable employment and wages, ultimately they'll get to that point where they have a car and might be willing to work at your Rogers facility where you really need talent and can't get people to go today. So seeing employers who are willing to do that deep dig, and that takes often what we find is people from the C-suite to that supervisor level all being involved at the same time with HR in order to get changes like that really instilled and get them to last long enough to get more than just two or three people hired. But those are the bright spots that keep us in the work. So uh, just to build on that for one, because you noted the transparency that mm-hmm. that organization had. I'm wondering if there are also, to dig into that a little bit more, traits that you see in leaders or in individuals and in companies that help make that happen yeah. easier. Yeah. You know, yes and no. Um, sometimes we work with companies where I'd have that same example, and it was from day one, the leader was open and willing and got it. Other times, nope. Um, uh, it's a leader who has been my biggest thorn in the side who didn't get it, but their bottom line dollars and cents meant they had to get it. And so over time they were willing to make changes, but we didn't get the head and the heart case for them until several months down the line. And then that leader seemed to get it, but where I would not have put them in the same category of being inclusive, of being willing to own their stuff, if you will, their junk around um, exclusion, but that their dollars and cents, the bottom line of, wait a minute, we've got jobs to fill, we've got products to get out, and if we don't figure out a way to be more inclusive with this population, we are going to lose contracts. That's, that starts off with their driver. But ultimately, um, it, all, it isn't always the same types of traits that gets the initial leader in the door. Cool. Okay. Uh, do you have a question right there? I saw your hand. Um, <clears throat> I guess my question would be, as a person not in a hiring position and not in a managerial position, what sort of actionable items can mm-hmm. I do to help affect this? Yeah. I actually would say a lot of what I just saw on the stage here, and thank you for the therapy session. I honestly feel like I just um, had a therapy session, and I probably owe you a check. Um, so thank you so much. Honestly, well, you just gave me life. Um, but a lot of that, um, and we sometimes call it allyship. Um, and while I think it's that, I think it's also um, being human um, and bringing some humanity to this. Science says every one of us has bias. Um, And I know that to be true as a practitioner of this work before leading the center, as somebody who um, uh, spent part of her career as a diversity officer and then had my own business helping um, individuals and leaders and coaching in this, we all have bias. And so sometimes just being willing to own that and sharing your journey with somebody else who can hear you better than maybe they can hear me um, is part of the journey. And being able to help move the organization that maybe you work in or maybe you lead in, the things that you do when you're sitting around with your family or extended family or friends on Friday night or Sunday afternoon, those things move them and the decisions that they make when they go to work on Monday morning and Tuesday morning because you know the journey that you've had personally with whatever isms that you carry. 
So don't be afraid to move the needle by sharing those journeys. Share what you experienced and hear tonight, how you felt about it, the things I said that pissed you off, the things I said that moved you. Share those things in your circles because they will move somebody to do something different that moves our economy forward and our community forward in ways that you might not find out about for five or six years from now, but that will be meaningful and important. Oh, all the way back. And then I promise I'll come right there. Uh, Let me get one more up here and then I'll come. So how are you dealing with talent pool that has uh, come through a criminal justice history, and how do you work with employers on that? Absolutely. Um, Unfortunately, both due to um, sometimes individual choices and sometimes um, racism and bias that exists within our criminal justice system, we have a number of people in our community of all races and backgrounds who have experienced our criminal justice system and are back in our communities and need work in order to thrive in the same way that you and I do. And so we are working both in communities with individuals to be sure that we have access and full open pipelines to the careers and jobs that today are willing to be able to hire people who are formerly incarcerated and to push employers who have put artificial barriers in place to say we can't hire people who have been incarcerated to help them question that, to ask the why and to ask the why and to ask the why again. There are some jobs where, okay, sure, maybe you have a federal contract that prohibits you and takes that decision completely out of your hands, but what we find with employers is often that's not the case. Often it's one job classification had that rule and it got a applied to every job within the organization. And so we're coming in with HR departments and even C-suite to say, okay, wait a minute, is that really necessary? Even with banks, we found J.P. Morgan Chase, which is one of our partners and funders, just this weekend in Chicago announced that they will now be hiring people who have been formerly incarcerated, which is major considering the number of banks that we've been asking for the last five years to change that rule and to examine what jobs in their institutions that they could be hiring, that it's not every job that you are held by federal state to. And now we have a large bank who has said, hey, wait a minute, we're not actually held to that ruling. We could have some privilege here and some choice. Once one major institution makes that decision, it opens up the door for others and for groups like ours to push that door open even further. And we'll continue to do so at the same time that we share success stories. And we can't do enough of that. We've had plenty, plenty, plenty of examples of men and women who have been formerly incarcerated, who have been able to come through job training programs and secure employment, making large, high wages, family-sustaining wages, and be able to regain the success and the ability to thrive in their communities who are then being able to extend that deeper into their own families and communities who are able to open up their own businesses so that if traditional employment, large mainstream employers are not willing to open those doors, they can create businesses that can hire other formerly incarcerated individuals themselves. And that pathway has to also continue to be open, but that requires lending and loan dollars to be able to be available to them as well. So being able to elevate those success stories, places like All Squared and others that are really taking on that opportunity is important for us to do. Very cool. Okay. Thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. Um, you talked about lending, and you just gave a story of a, a big commercial bank. So I have a question. In our capitalistic society, one of the biggest challenges, uh, I think, for people of color is, is not just having an equal wage. That's one thing, and that it sounds like there's a huge barrier for that. So thank you for talking about that. But what about building wealth? Absolutely. Right? So that's how we get ahead in the United States, right? And we pass it down to our children. And I know in Minnesota and the rest of the country, we've had, you know, lending 
or lack thereof for big chunks of our community. So how, how does Minneapolis and St. Paul, how does the state of Minnesota work to make sure that lenders are recognizing entrepreneurs of color, women, um, and those folks who are actually really invested in the capitalistic approach, which is starting something, innovating something, becoming employer themselves, and then building wealth? Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Our data um, that we released in those indicators for an inclusive regional economy that I mentioned earlier would show that we still have disparities taking place both by race, by gender, and by place as it relates to commercial businesses, um, both for starting a business, being able to reinvest in that business to grow the number of employees and um, the amounts of products and goods that can be sold, but also for being able to do bricks and mortar in those businesses. And we see the same thing happening as it relates to home mortgages going into middle-income um, uh, homeowners which is the biggest way that American um, Americans have been able to build wealth in this country. And we know that we've had that stripped out of the hands, particularly of indigenous people and people of color. So we have a lot of work to do in Minnesota and in particular in the Twin Cities region to stop redlining, whether that's on the commercial side or residential side, and to get more transparency of banks. We find that often that data only becomes available when a lawsuit has taken place um, and is then publicized. Very few are just naturally putting that data out. We're hoping that through the indicators being put out that that is raising more and more questions. We've had bank board members who have come to us to say, hey, wait a minute, do you know the data for the bank of the board that I sit on? And we've been able to say, no, but you should. You should go ask that question. You should go ask for disaggregated data by race and by place and by gender about what loans are going out and why if they're not going out. The flip side of that is, is there are other vehicles. So one of the things that we've begun taking on in the last year is exploring how to make venture capital and angel investing more inclusive. We just mm. um, about a month ago held an event in partnership with the Case Foundation and the Aspen Institute here with venture capitalists and angel investors to start to elevate the opportunity for them to be investing in more businesses owned by women and people of color to show them the data that says that actually people of color pay back those loans and have greater success with those loans than their counterparts. And so therefore, it is not a risky bet. It's not that we're asking you to take a bigger risk, which is often the narrative that we paint, but it is a good way to make money. And so to the extent that you are in venture capital or angel investing because you want to make money, it is what you should do. And what we heard then was, which was great to hear from local venture capitalists was, okay, Tawana, arm me with the data. Tell me to go out and say that because as I just shared with you to your question, um, one of them happened to be one of um, my landlords in our building said, Tawana, like I am a 50 some year old white male who is a venture capitalist. They will listen to me. Give me the data and I will go sell it. Like I will help people like me get that they should be putting their hand, their money in the hands of businesses owned by women and people of color because I didn't know this data before I walked in here and spent the day with you all. So that's work that we're taking on is to say that, yes, bank lending is important. But so is angel investing and venture capital and other equity investments that allow those businesses to grow and grow our economy and changing that narrative with the facts by elevating it is critically important. So uh, one of the folks in the audience already asked the question I always really like to end with, which is what do we do? Like how do we go out and do work from here? So mm -hmm. we, I feel like we've got a good head start on that. And I also, to sort of end here, and one of the things that you talked about in one of your talks that I watched is uh, taking on some of our own privileges, mm -hmm. which we've probably, a lot of us have heard that before, and you have a very different way of sort of asking people to think about yeah. their kinds of privilege. And yeah. so I'm wondering if you can share that as sort mm -hmm. of maybe a, a thing for us to leave with. Like, what should we be looking at mm -hmm. internally in terms of our own privilege in Absolutely. terms of going back out? Absolutely. So I ask us all, including myself, 
to give up the privilege of empathy that does not move us to action. I didn't share this with you all tonight, and I don't think many people of color share their stories with you just for you to feel empathy, for you to feel pain, for you to feel sad. It's important, but it's not why we're sharing this. So don't just feel empathy if that empathy does not cause you to move to action. Give up that privilege. Give up the privilege of complacency, the place that allows us to hear it and get moved and get shocked by the data and then sit still. It's time out for that. We cannot afford that. If you care about the generations that are around you, that are coming behind you, if you care about your own economic security, it is not in your best interest to live with that privilege of complacency that allows us to continue to do that. And give up the privilege of ignorance, of waiting and believing that what I don't know won't hurt me, that the data I shared tonight or the data you might find on my website or our website is, or somewhere else is waiting for somebody else to come spoon-feed it or waiting for your CEO to take action. I love that question that says, if I'm not a supervisor, if I'm not the CEO, if I don't own the business, what can I do? Every last one of us has personal agency. Every last one of us has responsibility for making sure that ignorant people don't continue to be ignorant around us. Give up the ability to stay ignorant. Give up that privilege. That is a privilege to walk around in ignorance. It is a privilege to sit in rooms and allow other people to stay in ignorance and to make actions and decisions that impact so many other people as though the information is not there that could guide them to better actions. Not on my watch. Living your space with a not on my watch. My People ask me all the time why I started the center. Lord knows it's painful. This has been the most painful last two years of my entire life, and I don't say that lightly. I created the center because I got two black babies, and I'll be darned if I'm going to raise them in this state. They are blessed with a lot of privilege from the life that their father and I can give them, but none of that privilege puts them in a bubble that keeps them from experiencing the same thing that children who look like them, who don't have the financial resources that they have, will experience. They experienced it. My daughter experienced racism for her first time at two years old, and I'll be darned if I stay in a state and don't do everything I can with every waking hour that I have to make sure that no other child experiences that and no other adult does, and each one of us ought to do that. Thank you. I don't have to say anything. Tawana Black, everybody. Please, big round of applause. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.